Hello, I'm Frankie Wolf, and this is Kick-Ass Kentucky Women Writers, where we chat each month with some of the most amazing women writing all across Kentucky. Today we're talking to Kay Nicole Wilson, a poet and painter who can pack a punch like Muhammad Ali when she wields words or a paintbrush. Her work has been published in Marginalia and Open Windows, and often appears on the Accents Publishing blog. Her poems have also been anthologized in Small Batch, an anthology of bourbon poetry, Circe's Lament, anthology of wild women poetry, and This Wretched Vessel and Her Limestone Bones, anthologies for Lexington Poetry Month. Kay Nicole's first poetry collection, This Temple, was published by Finishing Line Press in September of 2016. Kay Nicole Wilson, welcome to our show. Thank you. Let's start off with the reading. Since it's May, how about something with a little Kentucky Derby flavor in the mix? I can do that. I have a villanelle called Unbridled Spirit. And it begins with an epigraph from Silas House. And here I am with the brothers and sisters of my spirit. I read a parchment of leaves, and it reminds me I'm Kentucky. Driving I-64, I fly like Aristides through horse country, raising my voice with the radio from the mountain, from the valley. Buffalo dance trails made Maysville roads curvy. I wind with them at Thanksgiving, four days filled with family. Covered bridges and tobacco-rich fields call me Kentucky. I'm not the girl singer, but I'll bring you memory with melody till the sun shines bright again. Winters come and we snuggle inside, sleepy. Come on to my house, from the mountain, from the valley. Basketballs dribble. Cats play left to right on your radio dial. See them blue and white, fans in all states standing in celebration of each three. Exiting Rupp Arena, flush with victory, it's clear we're Kentucky. I speak with an accent and uncompromising ferocity. Let the rhyme wash you clean an April rain a week from Derby. Fertile ground surrounds from the mountain, from the valley. Driving I-64 home, I float as always dreaming through horse country. But I'm there already, swinging metaphor strong as Ali. Pin spilling ink beside a spring-fed pond, I know I'm Kentucky. Raising my voice in verse from the mountain, from the valley. Nice. So in that poem, I hear a lot of love for Kentucky, but also a love for sports. And I see on social media, your handle is the sports poet. So can you talk about the intersection of sports and poetry for you? I've always loved sports since I was a kid. My dad, you know, played catch with me in the yard. My parents took me to baseball games. We would go to the Reds games. And my parents also gave me books. They would read to me every night. It was just kind of a natural merging of poetry and sports. I had so much poetry in my life that it was just the best way to describe it to me. And the fact that a lot of sports is very poetic. Like just the finesse that, you know, baseball players for one move when they just turn to make a double play. It's it's fascinating, you know, the way that they just naturally merge together. I couldn't help it. And uh, when I went to Spalding, I wrote poems about Allen Iverson and Kentucky basketball and so the kids just started calling me the sports poet. So it kind of stuck and some people wonder if it pigeonholes me a little bit, but I don't think it does. I think it just adds some layers. We write a lot about Kentucky and really I 
write about love pretty much solely because I think all poems are love poems because why is it worth writing about otherwise? So if you were going to say, who's your favorite sports figure, who would it be? Oh my goodness. Um, Probably my very favorite sports figure that's living would be Barry Larkin. He was the shortstop for the Cincinnati Reds. Um, He was a captain. He's in the Hall of Fame now. Um, Grew up watching him play, and I got to meet him when I was a kid. He's just a stand-up guy. He's from Ohio, from Cincinnati area. So it's just a cool story. And then probably any... You know, any cool wildcat along the way. <laughs> I know that you've spent some time away from the Bluegrass State, out in Colorado, and then in Seattle. And now that you've returned, how has your relationship with home changed? And mm. what are you excited about with the community now? I I'd always loved Kentucky, and I wrote The Unbridled Spirit before I left. So I've always had just this joy and pride in, in the bluegrass. But when I left, it gave me a bigger perspective of my home state. Um, as beautiful as Colorado was, as you know, majestic and encompassing as the mountains were, there's still family and community at home that you can't replace. You cannot conjure that. You, you cannot create that in a short span of three to five years. There's just not possible. Um, and when I moved to Seattle after that, that was even worse because in Colorado, people were a lot more welcoming and friendly, but Seattle was very different to me. They didn't really, they thought I was funny cause I talked funny, you know? So I had a lot of pining in Seattle, really just ached to go home and once I got home, I was right. I absolutely should have come home earlier, <laughs> probably. And um, one of the best things that I saw when I came back to Lexington about the art and writing and music community was that it had grown tremendously and was bringing in more people from out of state and sending more people to go be ambassadors to other states. And we're such a crossroads now. It's very cool. This Holler Poets was going very strong when I got back. And Nikki Finney won the National Book Award right when I came back. Um, She was actually the first Holler I went to. That was just great. It was good to see that booming action. And then Frank became Poet Laureate. You know, you have all this wonderful stuff here. It's, It's a heart of poetry here happening now. And art, too. Just art is blowing up. I think. Yeah, I came here because there were some artists and writers here that I was interested in, but the longer I've been here, the more it seems to have grown. And I feel like there are pockets that were always there that I didn't know about. I'm starting to see the the cross-pollination, which is nice. It is. There's a lot more collaborations that are happening. And I think that's fantastic because that's the best way to grow as an artist, to just learn from people and to, you know, if you combine your poetry with music or you combine it with art like um, some of the Broads United stuff Mm -hmm. that Donna was doing with the poems translated into art Um, and then Kate Hadfield with the movement continuum she's doing Ever After which is 
fairy tales and some of the writers are going to do monologues and then the dancers are going to perform it you know that makes you I'm write things you never would do you know it's yeah. just very cool. Yeah, and and for those who aren't familiar with the Broads United, Donna Eisen has started a group. Um, and actually, if you're listening to this podcast, you're familiar with it because it's posted on the blog. It was called A Broad Perspective, and there were a number of paintings paired with poems. It was it was a really awesome experience. It was packed in there. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> wall to wall people. It was hot, but everybody was into it. Uh, so you mentioned Spalding, and you're a fairly recent graduate of the Writing MFA program. So how did that experience shape your journey? Spalding was great. Um, I went there because it was the only Kentucky program at the time, which was a big deal to me. I considered, you know, like, Vermont and Wilmington, and, but that was, you know, about it. You know, I didn't really want to go to Iowa, and I, I'm not in that kind of environment, really. Anyway, a little too hardcore in a different way than I'm used to, like sports hardcore, different story. I liked the nurturing that I got from most of the, the people at Spalding, which was wonderful. Like Greg Pape, just a fantastic teacher. It was wonderful to go there and just be amongst people that spoke my language, where they just got the writing, they got the art, they got the work required to do the art. Because most people see the finished product and they don't realize how many hours it takes, how much tedium like little dots on a canvas take or um, making the rhyme scheme fit in a you know, sonnet. It's yeah. just sometimes it can keep you up forever, <laughs> many nights in a row. You know, so um, we can make it look good, you know. We hide our work, <laughs> but, you know. It's the hundred hours it takes to write a poem or the ten years it can take to write an essay. Exactly, because. Wanting to write a novel, right? Right? There's some paintings I could never have painted unless I'd painted for 18 years. You know, like, it's just how that is. So it's just not quite like a lot of other jobs unless they're, you know, like surgery maybe. <laughs> you know, something like serious. Yeah. People appreciate the time that they put into learning how exactly. to Exactly, the intricacy required. Not that. everyone appreciates a little the time more, it takes to be a poet, right? Right. <laughs> Unfairly. Um, a little more life or death in their endeavors, but... <laughs> sometimes it feels like it's life or death to write. You never know when a poem might save someone's life, actually. So. Yeah, absolutely. Words are very powerful. I said just a few minutes ago that you really know how to pack a punch with your words. And I heard you read a time or two at Holler. I didn't know you, though. And we just met recently doing Queerology 101, which is something that Donna Ison put together. And it was in Rowan County for their Pride celebration, which, uh, if anyone followed the news at all... <laughs> was a big deal to have <laughs> <Yes>. it there. <laughs> to have Pride in Rowan County, which is uh, where Moorhead is. And we had a lot of bad press in Kentucky during the Kim Davis thing. So it was really great to be a part of that. But as I was reading the script beforehand, I, I felt all the breath go out of me when I read um, Flatlines for 49 Fireflies. So, you know, it's a poem that you wrote in response to the Pulse nightclub shooting. And, um, you know, the, I'm sure most people will know this, but Pulse was a popular gay nightclub in Orlando. And on June 12, 2016, it was the scene of the deadliest mass shooting by a single gunman in U.S. history. And it was the deadliest terrorist attack since 9-11. 
and by far the deadliest incidents of violence against the LGBTQ community. And 49 people were killed and another 53 wounded. Um, and it's, it's rare. I love poetry, but it's really rare for me that a single poem can just make me run the gamut of emotions. So everything from grief to ecstasy, you know, um, from hopelessness to hope and all these other stops in between. I'd love to hear it again. Flatlines for 49 Fireflies. A single melody can feed 5,000. Thirst is quenched with sweet showers of rhythm, but too often there's a catch, like how little boys will dance until adults say it's wrong and a pulse is stopped. Still, another pulse is stopped, like in the suicides of thousands, some who never held hands because it was wrong, some who never sang in a lover's ear to swells of rhythm. The melodic waves that pull bodies to dance aren't life preservers everyone gets a chance to catch. Like how little girls will play catch until a pulse is stopped, until some man says she should only dance, but only with half of thousands and without picking the rhythm, because twirling with girls is wrong. Why do only some get to choose whose love is wrong? And now there's so many fireflies we'll never catch, all moving in the night music, trapped in the rhythm, the rhythm of staccato drops, so many pulses stopped, 49 multiplied by thousands, so many steps left in the dance, still. Even in silence we must dance, and make new love, and new music when the radio's wrong. We must join our voices with thousands, alone there's too many tears to catch, too many pulses stopped before the end of their intended rhythms. So many feet dead to the rhythm. All they wanted to do was dance. So many pulses stopped. There is so much wrong. So much wrong. Grief is a bitter bug to catch. Each day passing like a thousand. But a single rhythm can heal five thousand. So take my hand and we'll dance and find rainbows to catch, and honor each pulse that stopped wrong. So what prompted you to write this poem? I was going to be involved in a little um, kind of honor type ceremony that didn't end up happening. They went in a different direction, but they asked me to read a poem, so I started to write the poem. And then in the middle of writing the poem, they said they went another direction, so I was kind of sad, but I had to keep writing the poem because I would be stuck in there. And um, it was good that I wrote it. I knew I would eventually have written it, but it probably wouldn't have been that poem. You know, not exactly. And I had been um, painting mason jars with various and sundry things in them. When I got this image of these people with the fleeting light dancing in, you know, in rainbows, I couldn't help but liken them to fireflies because, you know, their light is so short and so magical that it just seemed appropriate. And so I painted them in the firefly jars too. And um, I'd like to eventually do at least 49 of those as a, an homage. They're also so fragile. Yes. You hold a firefly in your hand, it, you know. You can do so much damage with just a small movement. Mm -hmm. 
And so for me, I thought a lot about, you know, growing up a queer kid in, in uh, Appalachia. And I was lucky because I wasn't the only queer person in my family. Mm-hmm. But I had this whole series of kids come out to me over time. And for some of them, they couldn't tell their family. Yeah. Um, they had to go back into the closet after making this confession to me. Um, and I've seen a lot of people really struggle with that. So, I mean, talk about how a poem can save a life, right? Letting people know they're not alone and that someone cares about, you know, the damage that the world can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes unintentionally. This one was very intentional. Um, and, you know, the outrage was just as fleeting as these lives, which is kind of sad. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the, the way that certain politicians reacted, like they got their Sodom and Gomorrah coming to them kind of thing or, or whatever. It was just appalling. Infuriating. <laughs> yeah. And then it seems to have gotten just worse. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Um, I'll be happy to wake up one day to Kentucky where there's a lot more compassion for people who are struggling. Yes. And when we don't have Kim Davis's in office. Exactly. Exactly. So I thought it was really important to have this kind of poem and to have that Queerology 101 in general. That was wonderful. In County, yeah. Oh, that was amazing. I'm so grateful to Donna for putting that together. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to go down there again and do something else. <laughs> for sure. I'd be in for that. <laughs> um, so we've talked a few times about your painting which I get really excited about. Um, I saw the, you know, a couple of the paintings you did with the fireflies, and I, was, I can see some on the walls here. You've got the cover of the book that you did, and I've seen various ones in progress online. Can you talk about how poetry and painting work together for you when you're creating art? Recently, I had gotten this idea to separate my studio from my writing area. So I divided the office and the studio, which was a total mistake because I, I cannot separate the two. So they definitely merge in multiple ways. Depending on which one I start with, they'll, they'll merge differently. I find that when I'm painting, I transition to poetry a little more readily than vice versa. But I'll get it a painting idea when I'm writing a poem, but I want to say I want to go paint it. And um, many times I've been painting and just, because it's so meditative and I don't always listen to music or I don't always listen to music with words. So I just really go, you know, random place in my head and then you get a poem that just has to be put down. I've written a couple recently that that's happened to. It's just, I don't know if it's, also, the, the colors just kind of bring out a different part of your brain. You know, they, I think they stimulate different areas of you, so you can get the image part even better, even more visualized. I just also have written a lot of poems on my canvas from kind of the beginning. When I was in high school, I put together my little poetry book, you know, <laughs> like in a binder or whatever. With, so on that... That's, I guess that's the first place where I merge them. Um, I print out the poems, and then I do like a little like chalk drawing kind of thing in the background, some image from the poem or, or something. Some of them were a little 
you know, cheesy icons. And some of them were pretty neat, you know. It was a prequel. So then when I started painting, I didn't think that I was a good painter. So I needed to do something to kind of compensate for that, I guess, I think was part of it. Because I always wanted to paint like certain great painters, but then you realize that's just not you. That's not your style. I'm not a Rembrandt. I'm not, you know, going to paint like Degas. It's just not how it is. Maybe once I might do an imitation on some magical day. But other than that, it's going to have to be a little bit weirder. You know, it's just how it is. So I had to define my style. And that kind of helped emerging things because I often want to say everything at once or do everything at once. So that kind of followed. <laughs> so I, I mentioned the firefly pieces and, and the poem. Are you working on any other projects that combine the two? One of my paintings has the words on it from one of the stanzas. And so I'm going to try to do that also. It's such a long poem that it's going to be hard to do all in one. Mm-hmm. But I think I'm going to attach the poems on the back just so people can have it if they buy it or whatever. Um, Some of them I'll give away because that's kind of how I do it anyway. (laughs) But that's what I always did before until I felt like I could charge people for them. (laughs) We take too long to do that. (laughs) We do. We do. And we, you know, we pay people $5 for a cup of coffee. I saw something like this on the Internet. You know, and then we are upset because someone's poetry book costs 15 bucks. I know, right? You know, you're going to drink that coffee and enjoy it for a half an hour, maybe an hour. So this book you can have forever, (laughs) and someone might have worked on it for 10 years. So buy the poetry book, people. (laughs) So with with your poetry book, This Temple, you know, I had to read it a few times to really start thinking about it like a writer because it's just like I was stuck in reader mode (laughs) a few times, which is great. Um, you know, it's, it is kind of freeing to, to be able to get lost in poetry um, instead of immediately critiquing it. Right? Yes. Because we get trained. We do. The Academy trains us to think like writers when we read. Sometimes it's hard to write for that reason, too, because you're just automatically critiquing yourself like, no, no, and you don't even let yourself free write or yeah. process things. Editing before it goes on the page. Mm-hmm. So, that can cramp uh-huh. it. By the time I got to where I could read this like a writer, I started looking at the form and was just amazed at the way that you were using form. So I really, A lot of people hate form. You know, they won't even yeah. mess with it at all. I know. And so free verse is poetry now, right? It's become poetry. But I think that there's sometimes this real beauty in form. What can you do within the confines of this space? And so I believe the pattern that I'm picking out is a pantoum. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was just, I was kind of amazed at the masterful way you did that on a, in a few of these poems. And can you talk a little bit about what drew you to that form? I really like form in general. Um, A lot of reasons I like it is because it pushes me to cage my desire to say everything all at once into a little box and get exactly the right words that I want and to leave out the extraneous, um, which is hard for me to do sometimes. I go in my normal you know, conversations on a lot of tangents. So (laughs) it suits me to try to do this in form. I also find it kind of like a game. Like um, I was actually originally a math major when I went to college. And 
I also loved geometry and I always thought that was kind of like a puzzle you know I enjoyed that and so the music with the math was just a kind of a natural segue to poetry too music is math exactly <laughs> so you know that was interesting to turn into the English poetry major English <laughs> education from signing up for calculus and all that I worked in Colorado with a vet that had been an English major and then she became a, a veterinarian so my dad was like yeah go ahead <laughs> you can do that too <laughs> why not <laughs> make some money yeah. <laughs> but I don't know um the pontoon itself I find really fascinating because each line repeats at least once and the context of it changes if you want it to and, and really it should almost every time um so you know things can be a, a compliment or then they can be a backhand a compliment or they can just the ambiguity in poetry in general is so strong but this is like a double you know shot of it basically so you can read it on the surface level or then you can read it more deeply you know I think in a lot of ways and some of the poems I like to play with the same line and do a different poem you know start with the same beginning word and then see where it goes but my first pontoon was it's in the book um the one Eve is the original catcher, mm -hmm. uh, which is in the Wild Women anthology. And uh, it just came out of a natural like occurrence where I was, I had chocolate cake. I made it for some reason, probably just for fun. And uh, had. Well, you don't need a reason. Exactly, chocolate right? <laughs> chocolate cake, let's do this. So I cut it with a serrated knife for some reason. I don't think I had a lot of silver at the time or something. And I licked the knife. And so I thought, oh, licking chocolate off the sharp edges of the serrated knife is absolutely worth the risk. So the poem came later. But you have to save those moments and uh, then play with them in different ways. And so, I don't know. <laughs> I was going to have you read a different one, but I kind of want you to read that one now. Cool. <laughs> Merges a little bit of the sports also. Absolutely. Alright. Eve was the original catcher. Licking chocolate off the sharp edges of a serrated knife is worth the risk. It's better to eat cake than be a wife. Guarding the plate like Carlton Fisk is worth the risk. If the pitching's distressed, guarding the plate like Carlton Fisk is useless. If the pitching's distressed, cleaning the dish is useless. A dustless world is just a wish. Cleaning the dish leaves time for contemplation. A dustless world is just a wish. Total happiness is an imagination. Leave time for contemplation. Don't obsess. Total happiness is an imagination. Try to minimize the mess. Don't obsess. It's better to eat cake than be a wife. Try to minimize the mess. Licking chocolate off the sharp edges of a serrated knife. <laughs> it's my mom's favorite poem. <laughs> it's a really awesome poem. I want to paint that one one day. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, now I want to go lick chocolate. I know, I need some cake. <laughs> I'm going to have to go home and bake a cake. <laughs> <laughs> sounds awesome. Uh, so what can we expect from you next? A lot of little collaborative projects kind of up in there, playing with that. 
I'm enjoying that. The community of Lexington is vibrant. And um, I'm going to put together my full length, finally. I've had it kind of simmering for a long time, the bulk of it, since Spalding. So a lot of it will be what I wrote there, but I think it's a lot more mature and realized because some of the stuff in this temple is from that. And if I'd published it when I first finished Spalding, I'd be embarrassed of it. So I would probably go to bookstores and set it on fire. <laughs> you know, I'd be like, no, don't, don't look at that. So, um, but now I'm really proud of it. You know, I feel like it's where it should be. That's so cool. hopefully we'll see something called 108 Red Stitches out Ooh. in the next two years. <laughs> the title's intriguing. Number of stitches on a baseball. I was, <laughs> maybe I would have known that. <laughs> If I had some more baseball. I know it's it's a I learned it first on a Trivial Pursuit card I think (laughs) when I was younger. You know that would actually be fun to just pull out Trivial Pursuit cards and have them as writing. That'd be a great exercise for a class. Yeah, I think I'll steal that. Do it. (laughs) So thanks for chatting with me today. It's been a great pleasure. It was awesome. Thank you for having me. This temple is available now from Finishing Line Press your favorite local bookstore or the author herself. Run, don't walk, these poems are essential. You can learn more about Kay Nicole Wilson at her website, kaynicolewilson.com, or by following her on Twitter or Facebook. Her handle is The Sports Poet. Tune in to Kick-Ass Kentucky Women Writers next month when we'll be chatting with Savannah Sipple, poet, master cobbler maker, and co-owner of Briar Books. She's awesome. She is awesome. I'm your host, Frankie Wolf. Thanks for listening.